It's good to be with you this morning, church. Uh, we're excited about what uh, God is doing in this place at Christ Point. Excited to uh, have the opportunity to, to partner with a great organization like OCC. Uh, this is a bit of a rabbit trail before we walk into the text this morning, but I just have to tell you when I saw the you know, five plus 500 plus 5,000 equals four, when I saw that, that problem on the screen today, I thought someone found my, my math quiz from elementary school. And I got super nervous, and so I feel, I feel like a load has kind of been lifted off of me uh, this morning as I think, well, no, we just have an opportunity to be a part of a great work that God is doing, so we're, we're excited about that. Uh, the purpose of John's gospel, if you are just joining us, or even if you've been with us uh, since the beginning of our series, is really found in John chapter 20, verse 21. I love when biblical authors just come right out and tell us why they are writing, and John does that in John chapter 20, verse 21. He, he says that I've written this gospel so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, uh, you may have life in his name. And so it is safe to say that the gospel of John is about that. Um, the gospel of John is about Jesus. The gospel of John uh, is about seeing Jesus for who he is so that we might believe and have life in his name. And who among us doesn't want life? Don't you want life? Don't you want a life to the fullest? Well, John offers it uh, to us in the person of Jesus. And so that's my hope and prayer this morning, that we would see Jesus, that we would believe Jesus, and that in believing Jesus, uh, we would have life in his name. This morning, I want to do that by asking and answering three questions. The first question that I want us to ask is, what does this text teach us about ourselves? What does it teach about you and about me? Secondly, I want us to consider what the text teaches us about Jesus. What does the text teach us about God? And then thirdly, I want us to consider, in light of who Jesus is and in light of who we are, how does God in his word call us to Respond. This is, by the way, the Christian life. Knowing who we are, knowing who God is, and responding appropriately. Uh, sometimes we respond uh, by thinking a certain way, or feeling a certain way, or by simply doing something. And today we're going to have an opportunity um, to, I think, uh, do all of those to think a certain way about God, to feel a certain way toward God, and to respond. Uh, so Phil kicked us off last week walking through John chapter 4 and introduced us to this Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. You may remember that she was a non-Jew. Uh, Phil indicated uh, through the text that this woman likely had a bit of a sketchy past. She is at the well in the middle of the day, more than likely to avoid the crowds, more than likely to avoid the chatter about her. She wanted to avoid that, but Jesus uh, doesn't avoid it. He doesn't avoid her. Uh, he strikes up a conversation with her. So the first question we are to ask is, what does this text teach about you and me? We'll take a look at verse 16 of John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus begins and says to the woman, go and call your husband. This is an intentional gotcha moment by Jesus. Right? Everything, by the way, that Jesus does is intentional. He's not simply striking up conversation. He's not just trying to learn a few fun facts about the people that he runs into or crosses paths with. Uh, Jesus is intentional in asking these questions because he's intentional uh, with you and me. And it's no different for uh, this woman. He asks her, uh, go call your husband and come here. Jesus simultaneously is exposing something in the heart of this woman, and uh, he is revealing himself uh, to her all at the same time. What is Jesus revealing in the woman? Well, Jesus is revealing her sin, right? Her sin is real. Uh, her sin is part of her story. Uh, it is not insignificant. And so in Jesus, in asking this question, is revealing to this woman her heart. She has deep longings and desires that she is chasing after in relationships. And needless to say, she has been relatively unsuccessful in finding what she is looking for. Jesus is using a metaphor in this passage of thirst, uh, he is drawing water or inviting her to draw water, but the water that Jesus is talking about is not just physical water. He's talking about uh, spiritual water. He's talking about spiritual thirst. He's talking about the longings and desires uh, that this woman has uh, in her heart. Uh, this woman has a checkered past. There's no way around it. Uh, more than likely, she's not one uh, to write a book on successful marriage, um, but I can guarantee you uh, when she was a little girl um, that this was not her desire and this was not her longing. Right? So she finds herself at the well. She knows her past. She knows how many times she's been married. Uh, she understands that the man that she's living with now is not her husband. The text, by the way, implies that that is an issue. Like I know culturally that is normative. We just, we do that. A lot of times before we get married, someone moves in with their boyfriend, girlfriend, future spouse. Uh, scripture here alludes to the fact that that, that is uh, not the way of wisdom uh, with God, but that, that's not his primary point. Jesus just simply tells her, uh, go and get your, your husband. Right? So he's exposing her heart. He is revealing to her likely what on some level she already knows. Um, this woman more than likely is a lot like you and me. And the details of her life uh, may be different Maybe we look at her story and we go, well, I haven't been married that many times. You know, I, I'm not, not living with someone who's not my spouse right now. Uh, maybe, maybe we try to distance ourselves from her, but she, in many ways, is a lot like us, or at least she wanted what we oftentimes want. 
She probably uh, wanted to be known. She wanted someone to know her, and she wanted someone uh, to love her. She wanted to be seen. Uh, She wanted to be cherished. Uh, She wanted to be understood. She wanted to be cared for and cared about. Uh, She wanted someone to see her at her very worst and stick around. She wanted someone to to know her for who she was, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and simply say to her soul, I still uh, love you. And we're much the same way. Don't you want the same thing from uh, your relationships, from your relationship, maybe with your spouse, your significant other? You want to be known. You want to be loved. You want to be cared for. You want to be cherished. You want to be valued. We desire that. We want that. But she has learned uh, through unsuccessful relationships that marriage doesn't fix your problems. Uh, Marriage doesn't complete us or make us whole. Uh, Marriage is a good and beautiful gift from God. It should be celebrated. Uh, But oftentimes, marriage serves as a mirror that God gives to us to hold up to our hearts uh, to reveal who we really are. And this woman knows on some level who uh, she is. Jesus has exposed her heart. She said to Jesus, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For, or Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus asks a question of this woman, and the woman responds in a way that's technically true. And Jesus says, go and get your husband. And she goes, hey, I'm, you know, I don't have any husbands. Technically, technically, that's true, but that's not the whole of the story. Uh, Jesus is drawing attention on some level to her sin uh, and to her desire. Both are connected. Uh, This is for her uh, somewhat embarrassing. It has to be, right? I mean, she's out at the well one day, in the middle of the day. She likely doesn't want crowd. Maybe she doesn't want to talk to anyone. She knows her past. She knows her history. And Jesus not only strikes up a conversation with her, but he reveals her, her deepest darkest uh, sin, uh, her her longings, her unmet desires, like all of it is laid bare before this man uh, that she does not uh, know. Uh, And I'm sure if we were in her shoes, we would feel a lot like she felt. I mean, nobody wants their, their dirty laundry aired. Like nobody wants to meet a stranger and, and share their deepest sin, right? Who, who wants to do that? Like, like, we did that this morning. Like, let's start in the front. <laughs> Everyone gets a turn, right? People scatter, right? You don't want to have that conversation with a stranger. More than likely, you don't want to have that conversation with a friend, right? Because all of us, like uh, this, this woman, we have, we have a past, There are things that we've said or done or thought that we are ashamed of. There are things that we hope nobody else finds out about. There are decisions that we've made that are a part of our story and we wish that they weren't. 
there are things to this day that we just would rather not talk about. And so when we ask the question, uh, what does this teach about us? Uh, it, it teaches us that, that we, uh, like this woman, are, are broken. We are sinners. We have experienced relational failures or financial misgivings, uh, sinful desires. We've said things that we shouldn't have said. We've done things that we shouldn't have done. We've thought things that we should not have thought. And uh, Jesus knows it all. Jesus knows it all. Um, Jesus knows our past, all of our past, and our present, and our future. He knows it all. Uh, and he's not surprised or caught off guard by it. Uh, what does this text teach about you and me? It teaches us that we too are sinners, we too are desperate, we too uh, have desires that oftentimes go unmet in places where we look for it to be satisfied, where it cannot be found. What does this teach about Jesus? That's the million-dollar question, really. It's the million-dollar question uh, for all of Scripture. What does the Bible teach about Jesus, this man who was promised to come and who came? Well, the woman replies in verse 19, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet.'" Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So, listen, for the longest time when I've read this story and heard her response, I've always kind of chuckled a little bit and thought to myself, <laughs> you think? Like when she says, Jesus, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like she meets a stranger at the well who shares her deepest, darkest secrets. He knows and she replies by going, I think you might be a prophet. Like, I'm going, uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. Now, maybe, she's, maybe she really just looks at Jesus and thinks that he, he is a prophet. Uh, he is someone who knows things. Prophets knew stuff. They spoke for God. They sometimes knew things that other people didn't know. And so maybe she's looking at Jesus and just kind of going, hey, you, you're one of many prophets who have come along the line. I perceive you to be a prophet. There, there's another option, though. I, I, I don't know necessarily if this is what she was thinking, but um, the Samaritans, as well as the Jews, uh, believe that a prophet was given special insight into people's problems. Uh, for instance, there was a time when Jesus was having his feet washed, uh, and the Samaritans snidely remarked, because of who was washing Jesus' feet, uh, they said of Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. That's Luke chapter 7, verse 39. They're saying if Jesus really was a prophet, he would know about this woman who was touching him. Here, this woman says, well, Jesus, you are a prophet, or I perceive you to be a prophet. And it may have been because she believed that Jesus was a prophet, because her sin was exposed to Jesus, that she was asking about worship because she said to herself or thought to herself, I need to go make a sacrifice for my sin. That, that, that was the... A normal response, I've sinned against a good and righteous and holy God, I need to go make a sacrifice. Maybe she is asking, like, where should I go make a sacrifice? Or 
Maybe she's simply trying to change the subject. Right? Jesus has said something uncomfortable to her, and she does what oftentimes we do when people ask us an uncomfortable question. We change the subject. Right? So we don't know for sure what she was doing, but she, she clearly has another question for Jesus. She's experiencing the shame of her past, and she's quickly uh, trying to maybe change the subject or talk about other things, or maybe she's getting clarity on what she should do next. What does the text teach about us? It teaches us uh, that we are sinners in need of grace. What does the text teach about Jesus? Well, it teaches us at the bare minimum that Jesus is a prophet, but we're going to find uh, he is so much more. What does the text then call us to do? How should we respond? Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where our people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She's having this conversation with Jesus, and she asks the prophet about where she should go to worship. She's asking about where, where uh, she should go uh, to worship, and Jesus is going to teach her about how to worship and who to worship. She wants to know about location. She wants to know about geography, and Jesus wants her to know his father. Uh, he, he wants her to know who she is called to worship and how she is called to worship. She essentially is asking him for a location, uh, but, but Jesus takes what she's asking and really flips it. Uh, the woman, when she was talking about a place where he, her people worship, was referring to Mount Gerizim. Uh, it was a, a mountain... Um, that oftentimes her fathers went to worship. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham built an altar on Mount Gerizim, this place that she was speaking of. Later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 33, Jacob constructed an altar there as well. So the, for the Samaritans, for the non-Jews, Mount Gerizim had been a sacred site for worship uh, for centuries. That's where they went. And so she is going, should I go there or should I go to Jerusalem? She was going to put it in her phone. She was going to weigh it. Wait, she didn't have phones. But she just wanted to know, where, where do I go worship? What mountain do I worship uh, on? We, you know, for us, this may seem uh, strange. Maybe we don't ask this question. But when you think about the way that we talk, even within the context of church, I think sometimes we talk like this. We, you know, we, we ask people, or maybe you've asked someone in the past, hey, where do you go worship? Like, where, where do you go? Like, what, what church uh, do you go to? Or maybe you even walked away from a church service before and thought to yourself, man, that was, that was good worship. That was good worship. Ever thought that before? Like, man, you just, like, I, just, I like those songs. That was, that was good worship. Scripture doesn't, <laughs> Scripture doesn't talk like that, though, when uh, talking about worship. Scripture primarily doesn't talk about worship in the context of location, this place that I'm going to go to. I've been, I've been by the way, fascinated with uh, what's been taking place at Asbury. Have you followed the, 
Now, the revival in Asbury, I don't know if you've followed it on social media. Maybe not. I'm just looking at bright lights right now. I don't know if you've heard of it. Like, these college students came together. They're, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, I, like, it's just, it's amazing what's taking place. These college students are coming together, and they're confessing sin, and they're worshiping, and they're praying. It's, like, I look at that, and I'm going, man, that, that's really cool. That's really cool what's taking place. But it's been interesting to me to see how um, sometimes leaders, pastors, like churches respond to that because there can be this rush, like, to, like I want to go to the place. Like, I want to I go to the place where, where God's moving and acting. I want to go where people are worshiping. And it's, and it's interesting because I thought to myself, and this isn't a criticism of what's taken place at, at all. But I, I, I hear that, and it's just fascinating to me how we can have this desire to like, oh, I want to I go somewhere. I want to go somewhere, and I want to experience something. But Jesus tells the woman at the well, um, worship, it's not, it's not about going somewhere. It's about worshiping someone. And he's calling this woman to uh, himself. He, he, he is calling her um, to, to, to worship um, the God of the universe. He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem but will you worship the Father. Uh, Jesus tells her that worship is not about where we worship but how we worship and who we worship. Worship is not about going to a place or chasing after uh, some sort of movement. Worship is not about geography. Um, it, it can't be. I mean, look at the times in Scripture or the places where we read about the people of God worshiping. Uh, last week, I was thinking about what took place in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in a Philippian jail. They're in prison. They're in prison. It says in Acts chapter 16, the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. They were thrown in prison. The jailer fastened their feet in the stocks. It was midnight. One author writes, it is a scene of the most intense misery, their backs hanging in shreds, sitting in the inner dungeon of the Philippian jail, their feet in stocks so they could not even comfortably recline, sleepless with the insomnia of pain. Like when, when you think about ideal places uh, to have a worship experience, that would not be it. Like I have, I have not met anyone that have gotten tickets to that concert. And yet, here is Paul and Silas in prison, and it says in Acts uh, chapter 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. There, there was no fancy lighting, there's no, there's no smoke and mirrors. It's not a fog machine that we're aware of. I don't know what the acoustics were like in there. 
I can imagine that physically it was miserable. You're experiencing pain. And yet it says they were praying and they were singing hymns of praise to God. Uh, aesthetics in worship, place in worship uh, can, you know, can be good and, and beautiful. Uh, many times in worship, if there are, are distractions that, that take us away from, from the word or for song, that, that can feel like a hindrance to worship. So I'm not saying that those things aren't important or that we don't think about them. Uh, we, we do. But worship is not primarily about aesthetics or environment or even place. I've learned that over the years. And I think I'm still learning it, to be quite honest with you. Because of the graciousness of this church, I've had the opportunity to serve in many places around the world that look very different than where you and I live and where we worship. I've had the joy of, of worshiping in obnoxiously loud, tin-roofed buildings in Honduras with rain beating down in temperatures that make it feel a whole lot more like a sauna than a church. I've sat on cheap, white, plastic chairs in open-walled churches off the beaten path in nearly forgotten places in Bolivia. I've worshipped under the watchful eye of government officials in China, uh, in dangerous communities not far from the jungle in Colombia. I've worshipped in half-built churches with homemade fans in Cuba. I've had the joy of worshipping in a small group meeting with a handful of Afghani refugees in the Middle East. I've worshipped in beautifully constructed churches in Jordan, and in churches with all of the bells and whistles in our own backyard. I've had an opportunity to worship in an elementary school, a local Y, a beautiful high school down the road, and in a barn. A barn with a cardboard cutout of Dolly Parton. on the way to the bathrooms that are marked with an arguably offensive name posted on the women's bathroom door. <laughs> Last year, we were at a baseball game in Kannapolis, and we're watching the game, and all of a sudden, Amelia, our daughter, looks up and says, Dad, Mom, look, the lady from church. And we thought, ooh, I wonder who's here. And we looked on the scoreboard and saw Dolly Parton. <laughs> like, pray for them. I don't know. I'm, you know, 20 years from now, I don't know what they're going to think about church. But uh, worship is not primarily about a place. If worship is not about a place, uh, what is worship about? Jesus tells us, you worship uh, what you do not know. He's speaking to the woman. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people 
to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is not about place. Worship is about a person. It's about who we worship, and Jesus teaches us it is about how we worship. All of us, by the way, are worshipers, all of us. Even people who don't know and love God or follow Jesus. We're all worshipers. It's just a matter of what or who we're worshiping. Jesus said to the woman, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is telling the woman very plainly and clearly, um, Your worship is, is not right worship because of who you worship. You're not worshiping the one true God. And so your worship is, is wrong. When Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know, uh, he was in part recognizing uh, her, her cultural background, the fact that more than likely she is not worshiping Yahweh, she's not worshiping of the Lord. But then he says to her, but the hour is coming and is now here when all true worshipers will worship who? The Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Right, so who do we worship? We worship the triune God. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The creator of the world. Uh, we, we worship God. How do we worship? Jesus tells us we worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, when, when the text here talks about spirit and in truth, it's not talking about worshiping in the Holy Spirit. It's talking about worshiping in spirit. In other words, we, we are to worship um, with everything that we are in the core of our being, in our inner being. That is our spirit, when Scripture talks about our spirit, it's talking about us worshiping with everything that we are. I love what Spurgeon said when he, when he talked about um, the, the, the danger in outward performance in worship as opposed to like heart affection. Spurgeon said, God does not regard our voices. He hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all, right? In other words, it's possible to have the most beautiful voice in the world and to sing a song and have it not be worship because it comes from a heart that is far from God. God does not regard our voices he hears our hearts. This is good news for people like me who can't carry a tune. And if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. Our outward circumstances cannot determine the authenticity of our worship. One could conceivably kneel in the most beautiful of cathedrals, listen to the most concise biblical liturgy, and still not truly be worshiping. Worship is a matter of of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the best church service is the one we least notice. This is why he said that. 
He said, the best church service is the one we least notice. As long as you notice, uh, you have to count the steps. You are not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need to consistently think or, or when you... Uh, you, when, you not, when you don't need to consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. I, I love when he talks about how um, counting the steps when you're dancing, you are not yet dancing, you are only learning to dance. I thought of this last Friday. There was a daddy-daughter dance at my kid's school, and I use the term dance loosely. Like, I, it probably wouldn't have sounded as cool if they said daddy-daughter fiasco or something like that. Because like, I was looking around at the dancing, particularly by the dads. There was a lot of counting of steps. Like, maybe I could argue that we were trying to dance, but I don't know if what we were doing was actually dancing. Like, I was doing the hitch thing. Like, I was staying in my lane. Like, I can, I can do the stink face with the best of them. But when things start to move, things go sideways. That's not dancing. Well, C.S. Lewis is saying in, in church or in worship, sometimes the best church services are the ones that we least notice. The perfect church service would be the one where we were almost unaware of uh, what was taking place around us because our attention would have been set upon God. Worship is about God. It's about the creator of the universe. It's not about the songs that we like. It's just not. It's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. It always has been about Jesus, and it always will be about Jesus. We come and we gather and we sing to Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants to have this woman know and experience. He wants her to know it's not about the place. It's, it's not even primarily about some experience that you're going to have, although that experience may be beautiful. Worship is about God. We worship in spirit. Right? So whether we sing with our voices or whether we hear the word preached, like our, our souls worship God. We worship in spirit, and then we worship uh, in truth. Truth means that we worship God for who He is, what is true about God. Worshiping in truth occurs when we worship in accordance with what God has revealed about Himself. This is true worship. What we think about God is of great importance. I love what one author said. He writes, subscribing to a biblically-based creedal statement is virtuous, though, of course, it is possible to mouth the words of a creed and mean something entirely different. The truth is the mightiest and most important thought man can entertain is what is God like? What comes to mind? Uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God? This is foundational. Our answer not only affects our worship, but our living. Every failure in worship or in doctrine or practice can be traced back to wrong thoughts about God. Wrong thinking about God is ultimately idolatry. 
because an idolatrous heart assumes God is someone who he is not. We, we can't just make up who God is and then worship that person that we create in our own image. That's idolatry. And so we come to the word and we say, God, who have you revealed yourself to be in the pages of Scripture? We grow uh, to know God and then we worship God uh, for who he is. We worship in spirit and in truth. This is why Jesus, when he was praying for the church, for you and for me in John 17, 17, said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So we as a, as a people of God, we don't want to worship without, without a knowledge of who God is. We want to worship God with everything that we are, with our hearts and with our minds, who he's, who he's revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. Worship is not a mindless activity. It includes interaction with what is true about God. We see Him as mighty and eternal and transcendent, the creator of the universe. So as God revealed Himself to His people in His Word, uh, He did so to stir our affections for Him so that we would worship Him in spirit and in truth. This this is how uh, God calls us to worship. Um, when, when, we, when we don't worship God in this way, we worship someone, but I don't know if we worship the God of the Bible. Like God doesn't want us to simply jump through spiritual hoops. Like He, he wants our, our hearts. It's why the, the uh, prophet in the Old Testament um, Says, says about those who had gathered to, to worship God, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of your assembling. Like, I'm tired of your assemblies. Because you, you come and you worship, but you don't worship with a heart for me. You just come to like, check off a box. God doesn't desire that kind of worship. He wants our hearts. He wants us to worship him in spirit and and truth. What does the text teach about you and me? It teaches that we have a past and that God knows it all. We are broken. We are sinners. We are in need of a Savior. What does it teach about Jesus? Well, it teaches that Jesus was a prophet, but it teaches that he was so much more. Like if you know the end of the story, it says, the woman said to him, this is verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I love that. This woman is like, I know, like he's, he's, he's coming. I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus said to her, I, I am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why were you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. Now, Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is the Savior. Uh, he is the Savior of the world. And he invites us, he invites you and me uh, to be worshipers of God the Father, the triune God, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. I want that for you, and, and I want that for me. I want God to change our affections, our desires, and our hearts, and so that we would worship God in spirit and in truth. Um, let's pray and ask for God's help.
God, we want that. We long for that as your, your people. We, we, we never want to be a people who simply gather because it's just something that we do or because it's tradition or because our mom and dad made us calm or uh, because someone guilted us into being here. We, we want to be here because we've met you. We've met you. Our need has been exposed, and we've seen that you're the only one that can meet it. We want to come because you've given to us salvation in Jesus, and we love you, and we want to worship you. And so I pray that for your people. I pray that for myself, that in our need, we would find you and that we would respond in worship. Help us to be a people who worship in spirit and in truth everything that we are. Change our hearts and our affections in such a way that they would be pleasing to you. And then teach us what is true about you. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.